Hello, and welcome back to the Tell It Like It Is podcast. I'm your host, Cassandra Ray. So this is the very last episode of season one. And if you're a regular listener, you know that we've been taking a short production break between the launch of season two and this end of season one. And for these few weeks, I've been playing back some of my very favorite episodes. Now, we've actually been working very hard during this break on season two, and next week we will launch a whole new slate of conversations with powerful, passionate women from around the world, as well as announce a few surprises that I can't wait to reveal. But today is January 26th, and most of us will have heard the news over the last week or so that in the United States, the COVID death toll surpassed 400,000. And the UK earned the unenviable position of leading the world in COVID mortality rates. No matter where you're listening, the likelihood is that you have spent much of the last 10 months in and out of some degree of lockdown. Here in London, where I'm recording now, we've been back in strict lockdown for several weeks. And I'm not going to lie, it is tough. I've heard from friends and listeners and guests alike that you know, it's really taking its toll now. Even for those of us who, like me, have everything to be grateful for, the isolation is really hard. And so for this last episode, I wanted to revisit the conversation I had with the very wise and very wonderful Andrea Gamson. As you may remember, Andrea is the multi-award-winning founder and CEO of Social Starters, a social enterprise that helps bridge the skills and knowledge gaps that prevent so many social enterprises from optimizing their impact. She's also just a lovely and thoughtful human being. We recorded our conversation just as the UK's first lockdown was coming to an end, and so there's so much that seems very, very applicable to where we are now what living with less can teach us, how independent businesses have been leading innovation and showing just a remarkable amount of ingenuity and adaptability in these times, how we now know what essential work really is and why we should pay those who do it much, much better, and also monk days, how mindfulness and meditation can be the antidote to burnout. I don't know about you, but (laughs) I really feel like I need that antidote now. So those are the parts of the conversation that I've gathered for you here today in a sort of bite-sized episode. And then next week, I'll be returning to the microphone to tell you all about the amazing women we are going to bring you over the coming months. And there really are no words to describe just how excited I am about these conversations with just incredible, powerful women, many of them my personal heroes, most of them you will have heard of, who are using their power and their influence to change everything for the better. And God, don't we need more of that right now? So for now, please enjoy this bite-sized episode with Andrea Gampson, and I can't wait to meet you again next week. I have a two-year-old and his nursery closed and we couldn't for a while have his, um, you know, we had a part-time nanny and she, she stayed home for three months. Um, Mm. and so I, it was difficult juggling, you know, work and being with him, but it's interesting to me that a lot of people have said, oh, 
he's going to have grown so attached to you and your partner that you're really going to have to wean him off. You know, you're just going to have to go cold turkey. And I thought, well, surely this is the ideal of what children are supposed to be to their parents. I mean, he is more attached to me now. You know, he wants to sleep with me. He's calling me for me all the time where he didn't he didn't used to because he's used to me being gone all day. And I think, well, that that's kind of beautiful that, you know, my little two-year-old son just wants to hang out with his mom. Like, that's not going to last forever, <laughs> you know? So it's... That's it, lovely. It's been, yeah, it's been a challenge in some ways, but also a gift in others. And, you know, we are very, very fortunate that we didn't have to worry that we were going to lose our home, that, you know, I'm in a, in a wonderful relationship and I know that we've had real problems with domestic violence and things like yes. that here. So I, I, I say what I'm saying now with all respect to that. But on the other hand, you know, certainly in my life, there have been some advantages this time that get you thinking about things too. And definitely the consumer piece. I mean, I had not realized how much money I spend on eating and Ubering. <laughs> I mean, I'm like eating and Ubering is probably 60% of my discretionary budget, <laughs> I realized. And I mean, uh, don't wow. get me wrong, I am going to go to a restaurant this Saturday because I miss it so much. 100%. But it's definitely made me think, maybe I can walk there. Maybe you can walk there. Yeah. And maybe eating out is a treat now. Maybe it's a treat. Yeah. Maybe and maybe then we'll really enjoy it when we do it. And it will become a ritual where we research the restaurant and we think about, like, we read all the reviews and we spend time thinking about who we're going to invite to come with us on this experience. Yes. Whereas I think before it just became so standard. Yes. Us Londoners, we spend so much of a disposable income eating out, Ubering, like you say, um, just throwing money away. And it is wasteful. And also, I mean... Thinking about we're going, we're going out. My uh, partner and I are going out on Saturday, but the where we've chosen to go, and we're going to a local restaurant. People that we love, who have been, you know, obviously hard hit by this um, pandemic. I mean, hospitality has been incredibly hard hit, mm. um, but they started a, a beautiful, you know, I think like a lot of restaurants did, um, like farm to table, not farm to table, I guess, but just like local grocers in this time. Um, they sold a lot of things at cost. They were selling handmade masks at cost during this time. I mean, just, and they're just such a staple in our neighborhood that I, as soon as the, you know, as soon as the social distancing lifted, I said, we need to go and support them. This isn't going to like, you know, some chain restaurant or whatever. Not that those don't have a place and employ people, et cetera. Right. But, but it was definitely a deliberate choice. Let's go give them some of our income and and enjoy mm. a fantastic meal there. So This is what I get excited about. And I've been working with local businesses now for particularly here in London the last three years. And I'm just so excited for them because they've been the ones that you can visually see who've been the most creative and innovative, mm. right? Like yes. selling things like right at the door, doing yes. little takeaway services, like pivoting a little bit on their product offering, um, you know, going out and buying like a, a locally brewed IPA in a little plastic cup yes. which you could take with you on your walk. We've been enjoying doing some of those things around my area and... Um, I think those are the guys that have really connected with people in within the limitations of what they could do to connect during this difficult time. And hopefully they'll then gain that longer term relationship that they've built with local consumers. Yeah. And I think we've all appreciated what they mean to us. I mean, uh, you know, it can be in the in London in particular, a lot of independent stores have been really squeezed out of the high, high street, you know, even cafes and restaurants, right. et cetera. And 
I mean, I'm, you know, La Ferme is where we're going in Primrose Hill in case anybody wants to go there. It's amazing. And what I say a lot about the people who work there is if you meet people, you just know when they're doing their life's work because mm -hmm. they're just so animated. And that's what the guys who run this restaurant feel like. You go in there, just, they just can't wait to talk to you about the food. They just can't wait to share it with you. The wine, I mean, he, he did, they did, they started selling, you know, wine to, uh, just by the bottle, obviously, to everybody. And they said, we're making five pounds on every single bottle. That's all we're making because nice. we think that people need to have delicious wine in their lives Aww. right now. And I just thought, oh, you know, you would just never get that from some chain store. You know, mm. it was, it's really, I think, meant something to our community. And um, I hope, I hope every community has somewhere or someone like that. You know, I, I, in, in speaking to you before, there were a couple of things that struck me particularly about how you've led your organization as very unique um, and one might even say generous. Um, one is how you've approached compensation in your team um, and that your compensation is the same as the team. And when you had to reduce pay when COVID first hit, it was done on an equal scale, I believe. Um, and the other is unlimited monk days. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about both of those things. I mean, first about, you know, paying everybody in your team, including you, the same. Was that something you thought a lot about or what did it just seem the natural thing to do? I've always aired more to wanting to pay my team first before me anyway. Um, I couldn't do what I do without them and I have the fortunate, um, you know, fortunate ex experience of having an amazing team around me of, pe of people that I trust who do a phenomenal job. Um, and I don't, um, uh, what's the, what's the right phrase? I don't um, take that for granted in any way, shape or form. And so I, I've always more likely been to go out and secure myself a salary elsewhere through, you know, consulting or training or doing other things so that I could pay my team. Um, because I always believed that this isn't forever. This is just a way of getting from A to B. And while we're testing new products, um, often there just isn't enough in the pot to pay everybody. It's as simple as that. And any startup founder will tell you probably that they would do the same thing. But at the same time, I still have a mortgage to pay, right? So um, the goal was always to get to a point where we're all earning. So to earn the same as the team is actually, I don't think that makes me particularly noble. I think it just means that I'm being generous, more generous to myself, actually. Mm. Um, and it's and it's great that we've built a business where we're able to start doing that now. Um, but, you know, I'm also ambitious and um, want to earn money like everybody else. And I want to be able to buy the nice house and, and get the mortgage to do that. So it comes with certain pressures that are usually pressures I'm probably just putting on myself and the company. Um, but it's good to have goals. And I think it's good to strive to be competing with every other small business that's successful. Social enterprise doesn't need to be, and, and it shouldn't be, this perceived charity thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it still is by a lot of people. And like, I get why. And, and there's nuance in here and the way it behaves and the legal structures and where it generates some of its income from, which can be through grants and donations to, to help get it up and get it going, um, means that, you know, people can see it as a charity. But it really isn't. It's about generating revenue. And so mm -hmm. therefore, like, you have to create wealth within that. You have to create income and you have to pay yourself properly. Mm -hmm. So I'm just really excited to, to, you know, to be able to earn the same as the team 
and um, and and now I'm pleased to say we've all gone back on to normal salaries after we all took a collective hit during COVID to try and survive. Mm. Was there a reason you chose to set up Social Starters as a non-profit? Actually, it's a limited company. Oh, it is a limited company. It is a limited company, yeah. But I guess the choice, you're right, in that we behave like a non-profit. So we reinvest 75 to 100% of all of our profits back Mm. into delivering on our our mission, which is to, to create... Um, these social enterprising ecosystems around the world. And so when we worked in Brazil in 2018-19 and some of this year, and when we were working in Sri Lanka last year, we were reinvesting our profits into um, in making those projects happen. Mm. I mean, I think there's such a, a box to unpack here around social impact work and profitability um, and also what we pay people who work in, in social impact work. And I feel like they're somehow related. You know, I mean, I'm going to probably talk a lot here and we can we can edit it down um, because my thoughts are, aren't quite 100% formulated on this. But if you are a capitalist, you know, and I am, I am a capitalist, but I'm, you know, an ethical capitalist, right? Mm. I mean, I, I think there needs to be balance, uh, but I'm not, a, I'm, you know, I'm not a communist. I'm not a socialist. I think there's certain elements of socialism and certainly, you know, Healthcare is one of them. There are certain um, markets that don't work best in a free market scenario. And yet I also believe in the power of free markets to produce wealth and innovation and things that have really advanced humanity and society. And I know that not everyone agrees with me on that. (laughs) I learned that in the last election here, for sure, on Twitter. There were a lot of people who did not agree with me on that. Um, Absolutely. But in this world that we live in, which is a capitalist world... I feel like there's still this feeling like people get uncomfortable when organizations that are social impact make a profit Mm. and it's somehow like, well, you can't really care about what you're doing because, you know, you're just in it to make the money. But you're in a you're in a capitalist world where, you know, things work with money. That's how things work, you know, And, and a lot of the. Um, the way that you can make an impact, particularly if you are not exclusively, but particularly if you're kind of a smaller medium enterprise and you don't have, you know, the government paying for your research, for example, is by generating wealth and making a profit. Why do you think there's still, I mean, first of all, do you agree that there's still this kind of tension in people's viewpoints? And, uh, and why do you think it is that there still seems to be a level of discomfort with social enterprise making money? I love this question. Um, there's so much to unpack here. Um, how do you slice up the term profit is where I'd start, right? So uh, are we talking about a business that makes a social or environmental impact? Then they make so much profit on top of that after they've reinvested it, some of it. Let's say they reinvest 51% of those profits mm. back into then furthering their social and environmental mission. This is the dream social enterprise I'm describing, by the way. Mm. <laughs> it's aspirational for many. Um, and then they've still got so much profit at the end of the day that the, the team have adequately paid themselves. They're all earning healthy salaries. The directors then get a nice healthy dividend at the end of the year. They're probably still not taking more than 100 grand a year OTE. Um and then what, there's still profit left at the end? So in this scenario, I think the, the the true social entrepreneur would only see an opportunity for that investment to go 
back into the business. Now, it might go into their reserves um, or they might spend some of that to further their mission and increase their impact. What's wrong with that? Mm. That's amazing. Profit is a great thing in the, the social enterprise model. Sadly, there just isn't enough of it floating around. So anybody who brings a certain level of cynicism to a discussion around, uh, the, you know, the, the good or bad around making money in social impact, um, you know, we've got to be really clear like which element we're talking about here because you're right to put healthcare in a different bracket. Mm. But if we're talking about the guy or the woman who opens a coffee shop, who then hires ex-youth offenders and trains them to become baristas and is creating jobs for a a vulnerable group already further removed from the jobs market, Mm. um, you know, why aren't they allowed to make money like everybody else and then be remunerated for their hard work and provide for their families and be able to create more jobs and open a second cafe? Yes, why? Why not? (laughs) (laughs) This is a good thing. Yeah. But the reality is the larger percentage of all these types of business and that employability model is just one of maybe 10 different types of social enterprise model. So there are many different types. Uh, but unfortunately, the majority of these types of businesses close down and fail in their first four years because they didn't have enough money, because they didn't have enough expertise and enough people to be able to take it further afield. And they weren't able to pay themselves properly. So we have completely the opposite problem. Mm. It's a good problem to have if we're making too much profit. And a social entrepreneur, by very nature of who they are, um, they wake up in the morning to try and solve problems that better people plan it in their communities, right? So... Mm. They would spend that money, that surplus money that's floating around in our imaginary scenario. They'd spend it doing good. Mm. I mean, related question is about compensation um, people have in, in nonprofits. So um, I think it was a year or two ago, there was a big story about the five executives at Oxfam who earned in the low 100,000s. Um, and then I think also had, you know, something like 15 or 20 grand in expenses that they were able to, to put through. Now, I appreciate that my perception of this is probably skewed. First of all, I live in London. Prior to living in London, I lived in New York. You know, so I live in capital cities where professionals earn more than you know a lot of other parts of the country and indeed the world. I also happen to know a lot of people in my network who work in investment banking or strategy consulting for top firms. And in those industries, it is not uncommon for people to earn you know, 200,000 a year before they're 30, before Mm. they're really, I mean, honestly, before you're 30, what value are you really, really creating? I mean, I, I love to think that I was super valuable to my organization when I was 25, but with the benefit of hindsight, probably a lot of other people could have done my job. Um, so, you know, to me, I look at a salary to be one of the top people leading an organization, the size of Oxfam and doing the work that Oxfam does. I look at a salary of a low 100,000 and I think, they've got a bargain there. That doesn't seem to be super well paid to me at all. That seems to me probably they could earn a lot more in the private sector and have uh, taken a pay cut to come work in the um, in the not-for-profit sector. Um, and mm. I think that's not just about, you know, organizations like Oxfam, but I also think about it like you know, it comes to teachers and nurses and the work that we all know in COVID times is actually the essential work. I think, well, they should be paid a lot more precisely because their work has value to society, not not the other way around. Where do you think this idea comes from? Again, that I mean, it's kind of related, but that if you work in a social impact space or if your work has social value like a teacher, you shouldn't actually make that much money. 
Yeah, this is really interesting because it comes down to idealism versus reality, I think. Like, in an ideal world, wouldn't it be fantastic if our nurses and our teachers and our firemen and our police um, and our carers in society, wouldn't it be amazing if they were the ones that earned 100 grand or were earning 250 mm. before they're 30? Mm. I mean, that's the way it should be if we got things right, yeah. idealistically speaking. Yeah. But where does that money come from? The only reason bankers can earn 250 before they're 30, by the way, if they are, if this is real, if you're listening to this and you're out there, can you please give me a call? <laughs> because I've got a way that I can help you reinvest some of that. Um, yeah, I mean, like the only way that that's possible is because of that surplus cash that's floating around and the, the, the sheer logistics of what it is that that person is doing to create wealth that then allows them to be able to pay them that in the first place. And so that's that's why it is that way. Um yeah, I've lost my train of thought. No, that's all right. What was your question again? I don't really. I don't think it. I don't actually think <laughs> there was a question. Yeah, I think it was just you know why? Why? I mean, I guess it is. There isn't a lot of surplus capital in nursing and Sadly you know not. and and teaching, but but they should be paid more though. And I think you know, seeing banners around you know shop windows in my local neighbourhood in southeast London, like this is. This is something people are campaigning for and, and hopefully that's going to make a difference. Even if somebody just gets a £5,000 a year pay rise, that, that, mm. that makes a big difference to mm. a young family or somebody who lives Huge. on their own and, and can't afford their rent. So, um, But going back to the Oxfam example, yeah. um, senior leaders in any organisation, charities included, they work bloody hard and they have earned their place there in that leadership role. And that needs to be remunerated. And you've also got to be competitive. If you want to get the best talent, yes, you are competing, therefore, with these you know, large um, financial institutions who can afford to pay them more. Um, and they do take huge pay cuts. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being, you know, what one might argue is fairly remunerated for what they're doing. I think when I say that, there's a difference between someone who lives in London um, deeming what's fair versus somebody that lives in Cornwall, say, um, but then that also just bounds, boils down to the limitations of your own experience. And so if you're a successful business executive in the southwest of the UK and you're thinking you're doing very wonderfully, very well, thank you very much at, you know, 50, 60 grand a year uh, mm. salary, and you can't even begin to fathom how somebody would earn 100 or 250, it's just outside of your realm of understanding, then then I get why people would feel frustrated and confused that somebody in a senior leadership role might earn that that figure in in a in a third sector in a charity sector where the the predominant income comes from people's donations and um and and that's people putting their hands in their pocket thinking that they're they're putting that towards you know curing cancer or helping elderly people or whatever the thing is but then really it's just going into the pockets of of an individual who's doing a job that that they just can't fathom Mm-hmm. Um, it is worth earning double what they're on. Mm-hmm. You can kind of get it, can't you? But yeah. it, it just boils down to the limitations of experience. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's right. I do want to just touch on monk days. Mm. Um, so I think that you... How, well, how long have you been meditating? That's the first question. <laughs> I, I wish I was meditating more. Um, it's, it is literally the best thing a human being can do um, for their sanity, for their health. Um, to get that all important and often elusive balance. Um, But I first started meditating thanks to a a great old boss who put me on a mindfulness course um, as a result of my eye twitching for six weeks nonstop. 
And when I found mindfulness, this is not to make me sound like some like, oh, mindfulness guru. Um, but uh, it was just a very, very simple realisation that my thoughts don't control me, um, that I gained from doing mindfulness. And I was able to take those spinning thoughts, often very negative, very anxious thoughts that were constantly telling me things in my head, which were thought patterns I'd created over many, 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 many years um, that didn't necessarily come from a great place. And they were destroying me and they were destroying my life and, and knocking my confidence um, and they meant that I was making bad choices as well, right? And mindfulness or meditation or just being calm, stillness, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think meditation is an art. It's a thing you sit down and you do do. You can build mindfulness, though, into your daily life, like sitting on the bus, going to work or walking to the shops. It doesn't have to be that you sit down and you cross your legs and, um, you know, pray. Mm. But uh, when I just stopped thinking, to be honest, because I just actually stopped thinking and uh, put my thoughts in like a little black box in my mind mm. and locked them away, um, I discovered something very, very profound and I felt something, I felt something very, very profound and it changed me for the better. For me, that regulation has been my, my, uh, my survival technique for handling... Uh, my moods, my erratic moods, my anxiety, my depression. Um, I've let it spill over in the past. I haven't handled it very well and I've had several burnouts. Mm. The Monk Day is a brilliant invention. Mm. and um, it What do just, you do on your Monk Days? It's it, Well, it's, so a Monk Day is where you um, switch off. You don't have any digital devices. You don't look at your emails. You try to avoid speaking to anybody. And you just... Take a day in quiet contemplation. It doesn't mean you have to sit there and meditate or um, do anything. It's just a free day to um, rest and recalibrate. But really, what do you do? <laughs> you okay, want so, to know what I do. Yeah, so, so you don't have... What so does Andrea have, do I on guess, her monk days? No phones, no computers, no emails, <laughs> no TV, I'm guessing. Uh, do you know what? There are probably times where someone just needs to zone out. I know I need to zone out to TV mm -hmm. sometimes because for me it just is so passive. I don't have to think. Mm. And um, being an introvert, I can get quite a lot from that. But the dream monk day, I think, is where you go and be amongst nature and exercise and take walks and, and probably maybe like meditate or do whatever the thing is that you do mm. that you don't do enough of that you know replenishes you. Mm. It could be just having a bath and lighting some candles. Um, you know, it could be writing some, you know, some stuff in your journal if that's your vibe. Mm. I think it's up to the individual to decide what their monk day is for them. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please do subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you're listening right now. It really does help put the series in front of more badass women, and a few men too, by increasing how we rank. While you're at it, check out the show notes for more info on our guests and to find out how to reach us on all the socials. As always, if you've got a story and you want to tell it like it is, I'd love to hear from you.